Good to see you this morning. As Andrew said at the start, from next week we can sing. So that will be a happy moment when we can finally sing. It will probably be with masks on. We'll let you know about that in the week. But that is what the government are recommending. So we'll probably go that route. Certainly strongly advise that. I want to encourage you with that in mind. I want to make sure that we're going back to pre-COVID way of life. In this regard, church does not start at 11.05 or 11.10 or 11.15. It starts at 10.45. Okay, so if you're in the 11 a.m. service, please come at 10.45. The reason for that, just like it was pre-COVID, is two reasons. One reason, we really want to honour the band that have been here since 7.30 a.m. preparing to serve us. You know, they pray about it during the week. They're praying for us. And it's one of the highlights of the week when we gather to sing to the Lord of hosts. And as Andrew started this morning and he's preaching to us from God's word and inviting our prayers, to be honest, there's only about 20% of us here to enjoy that. That's not, that's not a great way of honouring these guys. And secondarily, we want to honour the Lord. We want to sing him praises. If we really believe that he's the God of the Bible, we don't want to miss a minute of being able to sing his praises to him on a Sunday morning. Amen. So please, 10.45 next week. it be 8.45 for the 9 a.m. So thank the Lord you're not in that service. And you can just come at 10.45 and enjoy one another's company and also prepare your hearts to sing. Also, as Simon just wonderfully announced, these gift bags that Christina's put together and the team are just wonderful. Please make sure you get one of them before you leave today. Since I preached just a few weeks ago on the sovereignty of God and reminding us about the people that we live with, the people that we work with and so on and so forth, aren't by accident, they're all a part of his sovereignty. I found that really to be true in my neighbourhood. We had our neighbours over on Monday night, actually. We knew our old neighbours that actually own the house. They've moved to Singapore. The new neighbours moved in. He's from France. She's from Australia. Lovely couple. Had a, just the best of time, for, time with them. And just were aware, this is the Lord because we just hit it off so well. And then my wife was on a conversation with Savannah's netball coach this last week. And the coach was just saying, oh, I've got a medal for Savannah that I need to get to. Where do you live? And Emma said, oh, we live at three Tanglewood Place. And she said, oh, that's amazing. I'm moving into five Tanglewood Place next week. That's our next door neighbour. So you talk about divine providence. Our netball coach from my youngest door is moving next door to us. And so you never know what the Lord's up to. But what I can guarantee to you is he's always up to something. And so when you see these 10 gifts and you give them out, don't just try and pick people that you think will be really helped. Just give them out. Because who knows what the Lord may do as you put them in people's hands. He's sovereign. So pray and just go ahead and give them out and we will see what he does. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. We are starting our Advent series this morning and it will be an Advent series with a difference. It's not primarily going to be looking at the birth of Jesus. It is going to be looking more at the life of Jesus and in particular three encounters that people have with Jesus that goes on to utterly transform their lives. So this morning we're going to be examining the moment where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and we're going to read from verse 30 of Mark chapter 6 through to the end of verse 44. This is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, 
And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around this story today, I pray, would you bring it alive in our hearts? Lord, you can do incredible things with five loaves and two fish. And so, Lord, would you take my five loaves and two fish this morning as I preach and multiply them in our presence? Would we feed on you this morning? Would we banquet in your word and see you? See you for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this morning we come to one of the most well-known stories, I think, in all of the Bible. In most children's Bibles and children's story Bibles, this story is often featured. Often it takes center stage, and usually it is with some type of very kind, nice, artistic image. If you've been around church for a while, particularly if you were a child in church, you will have some type of image in your mind now. It usually is in cartoon form. It is a green, grassy hill with families sitting around all with their thumbs up, excited because they have full bellies from all the food that they have eaten with baskets strewn around the place. This is a story that is incredibly well known, but it is also a story, I think, that is incredibly misunderstood and also misrepresented. See, very often this is a story when you hear of it that has been moralized. So the punchline of the story becomes that it is a heartwarming story about the value and importance of sharing. And you think, is that it? Is that what this is really here for? It's here to teach us about sharing? I remember when I lived in the UK. In the UK, as pastors, you can actually go into schools, normal public schools. And you can take assemblies and tell them about Jesus. It's amazing. It's part of the country at the moment. Not sure it'll last, but it is at the moment. And so one of my colleagues, Dan Gavetta, he went into our local primary school, gathered about 200 kids together, and he preached to them from this text. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sits down, he felt it had gone well. And the principal got up and he said, So children, what does that story teach us? Different hands go up around the room and he's like, listen, no need to answer. I'll answer for you. Put your hands down. This story is here to teach us that we need to keep our world tidy. And that was it. 
that was the punchline that we need to make sure we're putting stuff in the baskets and keeping it all tidy. And you think, is that it? Is that why the Holy One of Israel breathed life into this story to teach the world that we should keep it tidy? You know, this story is well known, but it is regularly misrepresented. Because this story is not about keeping the world tidy. It's not about keeping the importance of sharing in our hearts. No, this story is designed to show us Christ. That's why it's here. It's here to show us Jesus. It's here to show us Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's here to show us Jesus in his compassion and in his power and in his mission. See, one of the things that I think we can all be tempted to do at different times is to read the Gospels like we read and look at wedding albums. So I remember particularly when you used to, do we still get wedding albums now? Is that still what people do? It used to be back when I was, yeah, but you get a wedding album. And listen, I remember the first time I saw a wedding album, I did what most of you do as well, because I've watched you, I've seen you do these things. And so you open the wedding album, what do you do? Flick over the page, there's the bride. Great, keep going, keep going, keep going. Because who are you looking for? Yourself! That's who you're looking for. You're looking for the group shot. So you keep going, oh, it's lovely, you look lovely. <laughs> yes, eventually you find the group shot and then you find your face because you want to see yourself and you find your face and oh, there I am, I'm in the album. Oh, my head didn't look what I thought it did and oh, the, the outfit doesn't look that great either and you're disappointed so you close the book. You, you read a wedding album busy looking for yourself. And I think it's all too easy to read the Gospels that same way. To be examining the pages, be examining the pages, but actually we're busy looking for ourselves. Well, my friends, I want you to understand this morning, these Gospels in this word are not designed primarily to, for you to be looking for yourself. They're here primarily to show us Christ, to show us him in all his glory, to show us him and his majesty and splendor. And I can think of nowhere better to start than this Advent series as we stop and stare at Jesus than Mark chapter 6. Because right here you see some really incredible things about him that when understood and grasped can completely change your lives. Three points in this morning. Three things about Jesus that I want you to see from this text. Three things that Mark wants you to see from this text. And here's, here's the first. Number one, the wonderful compassion of Jesus. See, this story begins and the scene is set with the return of the disciples. This is what we read in verse 30. It said, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You see, these boys had been out and about doing mission for Jesus. He had sent them out. Just a few days prior, in verse 7, we read, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He sends them out. He wants them to preach the gospel. He wants them to heal the sick. He wants them to rebuke evil spirits. And that's what they've been doing. Verse 12, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with all many who were sick and healed them. I mean, I would have loved to have been there for this moment. The boys are back in town and they have got some stories to tell. I mean, let me tell you about the time I laid my hand on this guy and a demon came out. And Let me tell you about a time that I put this oil on this guy and he, 
He could see. I mean, he was blind. It was amazing. Just like you did, Jesus. I, I prayed for him and then he actually got better. I would have loved to have been there when these boys returned, telling them about all that had happened on these travels. These boys are exhilarated in this moment, but they are also exhausted in this moment. And it would appear that the Saviour is perceptive to both. He's enjoying their talk, but he's also aware that you, my boys, are exhausted. This is what we read in verse 31. So he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. The many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. It would seem by now that even the disciples are somewhat popular and in hot demand. The word has got out that these disciples can do many of the things that Jesus does and so people are clamoring to be with them. And so Jesus Understanding what it is to be tired, he himself, John tells us, is also tired. He seeks to take these boys over to a desolate place for the purpose of rest and recuperation. J.C. Ryle says this about the scene. He says, these words are full of tender consideration. And so they are. Jesus, understanding their fatigue and their exhaustion, he wants to take them in a boat over the other side of the lake so that they can rest. However, it would appear the crowd have other ideas. And it would appear that rest and recuperation is not on the cards today. Look with me at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. So they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. (laughs) Jesus, listen, imagine the scene. He's trying to take them away for rest and recuperation. But it would appear that people recognize them as they get into the boat. And so by their thousands, they are now running around the lake, anticipating where they are going to a desolate place. And that is where they're going to meet them. I mean, listen, this is one of these moments in the Bible, at least for me, where it's like, oh no, I really feel for you. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of what I feel as I examine this scripture. They're tired, they're exhausted. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly in the boat as they see, having just gone this four-mile trip to the other side of the lake, <laughs> when they see, oh no, they're there. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, I've experienced at least that at a very small scale, scale level. You know, you're tired, you come in from work, <clears throat> particularly if you're there before the kids, if you're working from home. And you're tired, you're exhausted from the day. It started at 6 a.m., it's been a big day. And then all five kids come tearing in from school. There's fighting at the back. Everybody's got something to tell you about. You've got to help them with their math homework. There's literally hundreds of things going on. You're exhausted and now it's busy because all five kids are home and they've got something to tell you. That's just five kids. Imagine 10,000 people as you see them. Oh my, is this a mirage before me? There are thousands of people that want my attention. You know what? I reckon if you were flying the boat, this is what you would have heard. It would have been the disciples, probably Peter somewhere in the back. Hey, Jesus, um, hit the reverse. Hit the reverse. Let's go back. Let's just go to the middle and sunbathe. I don't want to go. Please, no. I wonder what the tone of conversation was around. I wonder what the look in their eye was. They would not be amused that all these people had followed them around. And yet Jesus' response, 
really is something to behold. Look with me at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, in John's Gospel, it makes it very clear that Jesus is also tired at this point. He's also been doing ministry for several days. He is ready for a break, ready for rest. And yet as he gets off the boat with probably 10,000 people in front of him, Mark tells us, first and foremost, not of an action that Jesus does, but of his heart. Not of something that he actually does, but of something that he feels. And what he feels is compassion. Tiredness diminishes, and his heart feels compassion. You know, nine times in the Gospels we read of Jesus being full of compassion. Sometimes that's when he encounters somebody who is ill or struggling with sickness and his immediate response is he is filled with compassion towards what they're going through. Sometimes it's in the response to seeing someone who is suffering or going through trial and his immediate response is compassion for them. Other times again it is when he comes across the ravaging effects of sin. And sees the way people are affected by sin as individuals, but also as multitudes. On one occasion, as he arrives at Jerusalem, it just says that he weeps before the people. As he realizes the reality that they are indeed sheep without a shepherd, people in major need. You know, Sovereign Grace, I don't know what you think Jesus walks towards you with. But I want to exhort you, what he, always exhort, what he always walks to you with is compassion. The Bible makes it clear, Jesus yesterday and today and forever is always the same. There's no shadow within him. He continues to be the same. As he walks towards you in your life, whether you be a believer or not, he always walks towards you with compassion. He's not irritated. He's not annoyed. He's not ticked off. He's not like, listen, didn't you come to me yesterday with a few things as well or a few hours ago? I mean, I'm tired. Nope. Leaning in. Walking towards you with compassion. And that's the very same compassion that he feels towards the crowd in Mark chapter six as well. Gets off the boat, exhausted, sees them. So then this is what he does, verse 34, part B. It says, and he began to teach them many things. Full of compassion, Jesus begins to teach them many things. Mark doesn't give us the exact details of what he says to them, but in headline, he does indeed make it clear at the start of the gospel of Mark what it is he preaches. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. That was the message of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to give you life and that in abundance. Jesus would have no doubt been preaching this very same message to the crowds in this moment. He is tired, but he wants to teach and preach to them. Why? Because he feels compassion towards them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he loves them. 
and he cares about them. And so he pursues them with compassion. Listen, this isn't written primarily to show us ourselves. It's written to show us Christ. Behold your Christ. Compassion. That's how he saw them. It's how he sees you. Anything else that you're believing about Jesus and the way he positions himself towards you is a lie from the pit of hell itself. He views you and pursues you with compassion. That's not all we see here. Number two, we also see then the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And oh my, what all-sufficiency this is. Jesus spends the great deal of the day preaching and teaching to the crowd. He loves these people. And as he spends the day teaching and preaching, darkness begins to fall. And at that point, seeing that they are in a desolate place without any access to coals or woolies or Aldi, a low-grade crisis then begins to develop. The lack of food. You see, you have to remember this was a spontaneous gathering. Mums and dads have not spent the morning preparing a picnic. They have just picked up everything they've got and just run because they just want to see Jesus and the disciples. And having spent the day in the heat, having spent the day hearing about him, the disciples, as per usual, playing the role of Captain Obvious in the Gospels, have been discussing, hey, hey, I think people are getting pickish. We should probably tell him. Yes, why not? And so that's what they do. The disciples in concern provide Jesus with their assessment and recommendation of what he may want to do next. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples have been paying careful attention. They are concerned that Jesus has not noticed that time is a bit of a factor here. You have to remember the disciples are also tired. They're ready to get on with their rest and relaxation. So, hey, listen, Jesus, I've got an idea. We've had a lovely day. You've done well. Well done. Lovely teaching. Anyway, get them gone. <laughs> let's send them home because they're hungry and we're tired. So let's get on with the day. And I could submit to you that I think they were totally unprepared, I believe, for what Jesus says next. Verse 37a. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> I submit to you they were somewhat unprepared for that statement. These boys are not anticipated. Okay, okay, let's be clear. There's about 10,000 of them, 5,000 men, plus wives, plus children, at least 10,000 people are appeared to have a lack of food here, did not plan, forgot to pack all the sandwiches for some 10,000 people. Their response in this moment, make no mistake, is somewhat irritated and sarcastic. Pay attention to the words, verse 37. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It's sarcasm. You've just been told in chapter 6, verse 8, that on this mission, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. That's exactly their point. Hey, Jesus, empty in the pockets, nothing, just like you told us. 200 denarii would be eight months' salary. We have got 
zero. There is no possible way, no possible way that we can actually feed these people. They are totally broke. Well, Jesus has a plan B. Verse 38. And so he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. The Savior graciously persists with these boys and their response post-crowd participation is, yeah, this is impossible. We've done like a bit of a research. Here's what we got. Five pieces of bread and two fish. So we ain't going to be feeding no one, okay? Let's all be clear. We ain't going to be able to do it. I mean, are we just going to give a scale of fish each? I mean, what, how is this going to work? They are irritated. They are despondent. There is no way, Jesus, that we can feed these people. Look at them. They're starving. And we've got nothing apart from these two, three, four, five, six, seven things, tiny little things. This is impossible. <clears throat> and I submit to you, That is exactly where Jesus was seeking to get them to. See, this moment, I submit to you, has all been set up by divine design. Because he's going to use this moment that they have freely just walked into to teach them something. J.C. Ryle says this about, sorry, John Calvin says this about the text. He says, so now, having discharged their temporary commission, They went back to school to make greater advances in learning. So they did. They just spent two years with Jesus, teaching and learning what it meant to be on ministry for him. Understanding by the grace of God what they are to do as they seek to please Jesus and honour him. They're having some success, but it would appear that their teaching and training hasn't finished yet. The work is not yet done. And as they declare to the Lord, it's just impossible. He has them exactly where he wants them to be. Because he wants to teach them this. He wants to teach them that in the midst of their inadequacy, his all-sufficiency would always be enough for them. They're right. This is impossible. The problem was not their calculations. They were right. There's no way in and of ourselves we can do this. There's no way we can feed all these people from these five loaves of bread and two fish. I just can't do it. I can't. It's impossible. They're right. The problem wasn't their calculations. The problem was that in their calculations, they made no provision nor allowance for the all-sufficient power of Jesus Christ. This is the king. This is the one who can rebuke demons and they come out of people. This is the one who can heal the sick. This is the one who can say to the storm, be still and it stops. This is the one that can say to Lazarus, rise and come forth. And he does. And yet these guys, having been instructed by Jesus to do a job, come out with, I can't, I can't do it. No provision for the reality of who it is that stands right next to them. No provision. The problem wasn't their calculation. The problem was that in their calculation, they had made no provision or allowance for the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He's teaching them something. He's teaching them that in the midst of their inadequacy, his all-sufficiency would always be enough for them. 
And if you want to know what that all-sufficiency looks like, what this power looks like, behold, verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Oh my. What a miracle. Five loaves, two fish, thousands are fed. Baskets are left over, still brimming with bread and fish. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been a disciple? Your hand keeps going into the bread basket and you're giving it out and then you go back in. He's like, oh, there's more bread. I don't know where this goes. Try again. And the more you give out, the more seems to be forming. It's a staggering moment. What a day this would have been to be there for the disciples. What a day this would have been there to be there for the crowd. What a lesson then this is for them a lesson that they would indeed draw on for the rest of their lives, time and time and time again, post-ascension of Jesus Christ, they would be in positions where in and of themselves they would have to say, this is impossible. And yet they would no doubt remember, oh, do you remember the five loaves and the two fish? It is impossible for us, but through him we can do all things. When he calls us, and asks us to do something, his power will be seen mature and wonderful in the midst of our weakness and difficulty. Listen, this was a lesson that would resonate with them for the rest of their lives. And I submit to you, if we're wise, it's a day and a lesson that needs to resonate in our lives as well, isn't it? See, church, it can be so easy in our lives, can it not, to face things that Jesus has called us to. And our immediate response is, I can't. It's just impossible. There's no way I can do it. I mean, you're calling me to train my kids in the way they should go, the way that they should go. Do you know my kids? Have you met my kids? They're different from normal kids. I can't do it. It's impossible. How am I meant to be married to this individual? I mean, it's so difficult. It's just impossible. Lord, I'm suffering and I'm suffering without an expiration date. You seem to be going on. There's no way I can keep doing this. I can't. Lord, you've called me to be still and know that you're God. But I can't. I just can't be still. I've got to do something. Lord, you've called me not to fear and to trust you. But I'm fearful, okay? I'm fearful. I just can't do it. How many times do we face in our lives things that our initial and immediate response is, I can't. This is impossible. This story is here to help you see you are right. These things are impossible apart from Christ. But with Christ, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. And you want to know how powerful he is? Well, examine this. Five loaves, two fish, feeding 10,000 people with abundance. So whatever it is you're walking through, I firmly believe he has the power then to help you. 
Sometimes that all-sufficient power might look like grace to sustain you in the midst of what you're walking through. Grace to sustain you so that you can walk through any situation with peace and joy and trust in the Lord. Other times it will be all-sufficient power to change your circumstance. But any which way, they both require his monumental power, the same power that turned five loaves of bread and two fish into multitudes of food for the people. This lesson teaches us that in the midst of our inadequacy, his all-sufficiency should always be enough for us. And oh my goodness, what a lesson it is, isn't it? And what all-sufficiency we see right here in Jesus. It's so easy, even more so I think in times of COVID, to just say, this is impossible! Well, you're right. In and of yourself, it is impossible. You will never do it. But through him who strengthens you, you can do all things. No one models that better than Jesus. Verse 41, he breaks bread and he looks to the heavens and he gives thanks. It's an expression of, Father, I trust you. Now I go. That's a great lesson right there. That's what we're to do. Lord, this is impossible. All I've got here is two fish and five loaves. It's all I got. Lord, I trust you. Help me. Now I go. In this text, you see the wonderful compassion of Jesus. You see the all-sufficiency of Jesus. And then finally, just to close, you see the glorious mission of Jesus. And oh my, what a glorious mission this is. This mission has been wonderfully alluded to and pointed to all the way through this story. And it can easily be missed by us. But I want to help you see this morning, it has not been missed by the crowd at all. They have been wonderfully perceptive to all that is taking place here. See, in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that Gospel reports to us what happens next. This is what happens next. It said, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, this crowd is wonderfully perceptive to all that is taking place. They understand the shadows and types that is being alluded to here in the Old Testament. And their immediate response is, listen, he's the king. He's the prophet. Take him. Let's make him king now. And so Jesus makes his way up the mountain. He basically hides himself from them because he knows this is not his time. But he can understand how they've got there. And we should be able to too. See, hundreds of years earlier than this event, Israel, as God's chosen people, they wandered in the wilderness and God in his grace and by his power miraculously provided food for them every single day of their lives, right? Manna from heaven. Every single day, he provided manna from heaven to help his people. And yet, as the Old Testament story continues, it's prophesied of one who will come and he will give us a bread that will truly satisfy and never run out. He will be the bread of life. And so as this crowd examines all that is taking place here, this miracle, and they see all the baskets of leftover food, their initial response immediately is, this is him. 
This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the king. Hope has come. Let's take him. Let's do this. Get a crown on his head. And they are so right. This is him. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is the bread of life. And yet they are also so wrong. See, this is Galilee. And this is the exact location where the zealots come from, where the uprising was coming from. And these Jews then believed that ultimately this Messiah would help them as a king to overthrow the oppression of the Romans. That's what he'll do. So this is him. Quick, make him king. We can get on with our lives again. He can take his seat in Jerusalem. We can rule the world. Quick, get him. They are right. This is the king. But they are wrong. This king has not come to lead a rebellion and overthrow the Romans. No, this king has come to give his life away as a ransom for many. And it's that that makes this mission so profound and so glorious, isn't it? See, all the way through this story, we see allusions to Psalm 23. And so we see allusions to how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 23. Psalm 23, written hundreds of years before this moment, is a wonderful psalm of David about the good shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's a psalm that teaches us all about the compassion and love of the good shepherd. Here he is. Jesus gets out the boat. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And his response immediately is, You ever noticed that he teaches them here and asks them to sit down on green grass? Why not just grass? Just say it's grass. Well, it's an important detail. Because in Psalm 23, it teaches us how he teaches us to lie down in green pastures. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 23. This is the moment. The crowd is right. This is him. This is the good shepherd. And all the way through this story, there are also allusions to Jesus being the bread of life. Verse 31, we see that this miracle takes place in a desolate place. Mentions it about three times in the verses. You think, why does he keep mentioning it? He mentions it because this is a repeat of Exodus. For years, they were in the desolate place of a wilderness and God was providing manna from heaven for them. Now he gathers a great crowd in a desolate place. And he gives them a great banquet of bread. Why? Because this is him. He had come to give them life and that in abundance. He's not a stingy God. He had come to give them a life and that in abundance. And so as the bread comes out, they don't just have their fill. They are banqueting on this stuff and then there's loads left over. Because he's an abundant king and a kind king. And in verse 41 when he stands there before the Father and he takes the bread and he breaks it, that is the exact same words that we see one year later when he stands in the upper room before his disciples and taking bread, he breaks it. And then he tells them, guys, this is my body broken for you. It's all being pictured in this incredible scene. 
Jesus is the true bread of life. His mission has not come to lead a rebellion. His mission has come to give his life away as a ransom for many. What a profound and glorious mission this really is. This story then isn't here to teach us to keep the world tidy. Negative. The story isn't here to teach us the heartwarming truth of the importance of sharing. Very nice, not white here. This story is here to show us Christ. This story is here to pull back the curtains on how incredible Jesus is in his compassion and in his power and in his mission. It's here to picard before our eyes the glories of Jesus Christ. See, my friends, if you're here today then and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I want to encourage you to not spend another moment of your life outside of his saving provision. The Bible tells us that God made us. It's actually God that knitted you together in your mother's womb. It's him that made you by his amazing grace and he made you to feast on him. He made you to be with him and enjoy relationship with him. But the truth is we didn't. We enjoy the kingdom, but we don't want the king. I'm happy with creation, but I do not want the creator. That's what sin is all about. And therefore, there is a chasm between us and God. In our sinfulness and his holiness, there is a great chasm between us that cannot just be ratified just by being kind to people. No, we need a savior. And 2,000 years ago, that was the beginning of Christmas. Jesus Christ came on the greatest rescue mission ever told and he came as the bread of life. He came to give us the bread of forgiveness so that we could be washed clean of our sin. He came to give us the bread of adoption, knowing that I can have a relationship with God again. He came to give us the bread of heaven, ensuring that heaven will be our home when we die. He came to give us the bread of the Holy Spirit, the one who now lives in us to strengthen us and help us each and every day of our lives. And he achieved all those things by being the bread of life in our place and being broken for us. And as he died in our place, declaring it is finished, his message all along was believe in me and you will have life. That doesn't just mean mentally believe. It means in your heart, entrust your whole life to him. Turn away from living for your own kingdom and now live for him as a king. Embrace him in all his majesty and you will be saved. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you to do that today. Repent of your sin and put your faith in him as Lord and Savior and you will be saved and you will enjoy his saving provision for the rest of your life and into all eternity. If that raises questions for you and you want to talk more, come and talk to me. I'll talk to you all day. I love talking about Jesus. And if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, my friends, at the start of this Advent series, I want to encourage you. Behold your God. This story isn't designed so that we can be busy trying to find our own faces. It's designed by God to show us Christ, to show us him in his compassion and in his power and in his mission. So may we spend time this Christmas season slowing down and gazing at him. And may we delight in all that we see.
Let's pray. Lord, to stop and stare at you is an absolute thrill of our lives. To pause and to take time and to see you for all you really are. Oh Lord, it is to be humbled and staggered and amazed. Lord, I do pray then, would you help us this season to slow ourselves down? Would you help us not to get preoccupied with parties and end-of-year events and presents and wrapping and posting? Help us to get obsessed with you. Amazed that the King of kings and Lord of lords came as a baby and in coming came with compassion and power and grace and love and mission. Oh, what a king you are. So would we stop and stare at you and would we delight in what we see? In Jesus' name.